0: Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host, Gemma, and today I'm going to continue my in-depth review of the Thomas Seeley book, The Lives of Bees. Today I will be discussing chapters five and six, but before I get into the details, I wanted to give a little bit of an update about what's been happening here on the homestead. So, for those of you who follow my personal Instagram account, which is at BrittyKitty, don't judge me, I chose the name a long time ago. Uh, You might have seen that my Greyhound Kaylee was in for a surgery procedure last week. So, it was actually a week ago today. I'm recording this, um, oh no, I'm sorry, almost a week ago today. I'm recording this on a Tuesday. So last week it was a Wednesday and I drove, I got up super early and I drove out to Columbus to see a specialist dental surgeon who Kaylee has seen before. And basically Kaylee has something called CUPS which stands for chronic ulcerative periodontal stomatis which is basically chronic inflammation and ulceration of the gums. And it seems to be an immune response to the Bacteria and plaque on her teeth and as a result her immune system attacks her gums and the gums become extremely inflamed and then over time they will ulcer and it can get really really bad there's a lot of um, the gums will recede a great deal exposing the roots of the teeth and the whole thing is just a mess it's quite painful so poor Kaylee has this and about two years ago she had her first procedure where she lost all of the big Uh, molars at the back of her mouth and it took a really really long time and it was quite traumatic for her because Um, her recovery was really, really difficult. She had a lot of facial swelling. Uh, She would scream if you even touched her mouth. It was awful. Um, She's also really prone to just completely going off her food. So trying to get all the medication into her was a nightmare. And it was about a week of me just syringe feeding her and baby feeding her and worrying and stressing until she started getting back to normal. So with that behind us, I kind of went into this second surgery feeling a little more optimistic because the teeth that she was potentially going to lose, those roots aren't as deep as the molars at the very back of the jaw. So they're easier to get out. And now we also knew what to expect. So I requested liquid medication that I could just squirt into her mouth. No pills whatsoever. And she also has a clotting issue that we had medication prepared on hand for and uh, sure enough things went so much better this time. Um, Last time the surgery took all day and this time I actually got a hotel room to hang out in so because obviously with everything going on I didn't want to be hanging out you know in a restaurant or a coffee shop and also because last time it took literally the whole day and like relatively late into the evening so I wanted to be prepared to stay overnight if I needed to but thankfully Even though my poor baby lost all but six teeth, she had a much easier time. The surgery went really, really well. I picked her up a little bit after four o'clock and I got to bring my sweetheart home and um, she just she did really, really well. So within About 24 hours, we had her eating a liquid diet and she's just gone from strength to strength and she just seems so much happier. Her gums are pink for the first time in her life. Usually they are bright red. And I'm just really glad that we did it when we did and that it's all over and it's behind us and I don't have to worry about my baby anymore. Although we're still in the aftercare stage, so she's just finishing up her medications and she's obviously going to be on a soft diet for quite some time. So that was my little stress going on last week because I was very anxious leading up to it and then obviously the day of I was kind of a mess and um, and I always worry about recovery. And it didn't help as well that we had the 4th of July weekend kind of falling over her recovery period because she's also afraid of fireworks. So even though they are illegal here, there's always some ass in the neighbourhood who starts setting them off like 10 days before a holiday and usually about a week after. Although thankfully they didn't... Um, continue after the fourth this time but still we had to medicate her for her anxiety because she has a really hard time but that aside I've also been nursing one of the hens from the big flock had what sounded like a respiratory an upper respiratory infection she's had this before I had some of her medication on hand so I was medicating her with it then the meds ran out I tried to get a vet appointment and they were booking like two weeks away so I got on their emergency call list for cancellations and then I started looking into whether I could find antibiotics for her online and I did and I'm going to put a link in the episode description but I found this really, really great website called allbirdproducts.com and they sell all kinds of things related to bird care including different medications and supplements so I was actually able to find a powder form of um, amoxicillin and tylosin, and you can um, you basically dilute it into water and you either offer that water for her to drink exclusively for five to seven days or you mix it with water and then you medicate directly to her via uh, syringe you based on her body weight. So I kept her in the house and because she was isolated, I just put it into her water bowl, which is much easier than having to figure out like how much she weighs and how much medication she can get. Also, Dotty is not very tame, so having to manhandle her for a syringe feeding was not going to be great for her. She went out to the special needs coop, the small coop a couple of days ago. Um, because she finished her course of medication but her eggs are not safe to consume for another week and it would be easier for me to identify her egg in that coop because there's only one other egg layer in that coop and um She's doing well, but she's a real bitch and she's taking it out on the other girls. And there's always a pecking order issue when you introduce a new hen, but she's being awful. And Agatha always seems to get the brunt of it. And I feel so bad because, you know, Agatha just recovered from her illness and she's old and she doesn't deserve to be beaten up like this. And I'm not happy about it, but if it doesn't settle in a couple of days, then I'm going to have to take her out and try and introduce her back into the big flock where she'll get the stuffing beat out of her because there's much more dominant girls there. I just kind of wish that, you know, it seems like the pecking order really gets settled settled within 24 hours. But Dottie is just like, no, every day I'm going to just beat up the other three girls to remind them that I'm in charge. So I'm not super thrilled about that, but we'll see how it goes. Watch this space. In terms of my garden, things are really taking off. Um, If you look at my Instagram, you would have seen some pictures of how my vegetable plants are growing. Um, I had one minor setback, which was the the original three sisters garden that was on the side of the house, um, which I realized wasn't getting enough sun. I had taken the netting off it because I needed to use it elsewhere and I was kind of deciding whether I was going to let that garden keep growing or uh, plant other stuff there well the corn started coming up there and so I was like okay I'll keep an eye on it and apparently what happened is a family of deer that we see quite a lot came by and like ate all the tops off my poor corn and then they ate the bean plants that were coming through and they actually ate some of my tomato plants not a lot Um, I actually thought tomato plants were poisonous to a lot of creatures but who knows so I ended up going out netting everything the corn that was chomped on is actually recovering because I, I got more netting in and I netted that bed and I put more beans down and hopefully they'll grow but on the plus side my primary three sisters garden which I set up out front where it can get maximum sunshine I did net straight away and so they were protected from deer and yeah the only reason I didn't net the tomatoes is because I thought that tomatoes were poisonous to deer and I thought they would I guess know that or have learned from experience and who knows maybe that's why only they chomped a little bit of the tomatoes but I Went ahead and I netted them in anyway, and that's all going really, really well. And because my bean plants are coming up now, I went ahead and I put my squash seeds down. So hopefully those will start emerging soon. And um, I realized that yesterday was three years since we bought the house. So, three years when our offer was officially approved and we began the closing process. And my first thought was, oh my God, I can't believe it's been three years already. And then my second thought was, oh no, and I still haven't <laughs> repainted the, all the rooms I said I would do. And I think, um, I do think it's easy to look at what you haven't done, but I I'm really proud of what we have accomplished since we bought the house. So the first, one of the first things we did is we had the fence put up, which obviously was invaluable because of our, our dogs and it enabled us in part to go from two dogs to three which was wonderful because I love all my puppies and I love that we got to adopt Luna and bring her here and then after that I started working on the flower beds and the infrastructure was all there it just needed care so I've been like steadily mulching and weeding by hand and now I've got you know vegetable gardens going, and I got the chicken coop in, and I built the run myself and um well I started with the small coop and I got that all sorted and then I had the big coop delivered, and then I built the run myself and then just all these things that we've had done, we' had new air conditioning put in, we had to replace all the furnaces, we had to have a new <laughs> water tank put in we've been um you know just fixing things as we see them. There's probably a million things I'm forgetting, but generally speaking, looking at the property, I'm really pleased with what we've accomplished. And I'm particularly pleased with, you know, what I've got done in the garden because I do everything the hard way. I don't use pesticides. I don't use weed killers. I do everything by hand. I don't have a riding mower. I don't have any... You know really useful hauling equipment or digging equipment everything that gets done oh it's like the drainage ditch that's all my sheer willpower and uh, manpower so I'm really pleased I'd still love this house there's a lot more that I want to do but i'm I'm really pleased with um what we've done so far so moving on just really quickly I want to talk about my hives um, I'll do a proper episode again at some point going a bit more into detail but the general news with how the hives are going is that um I have a number of honey frames in all the hives that look almost ready for extraction I'll actually be going back in in a couple of days and checking on their progress they're about 70 to 90 percent capped so I'm just kind of keeping an eye on them once they are all kind of closer to that 95 percent capped uh area then i'm going to extract them i'm going to take them out and i'm going to do my first honey harvest and incredibly the saskatras bees that you might remember i got as a package this year is um they have a honey super that's already full and they're working on a second it's just incredible and I know they had a kickstart because I had comb that was built out from the hive that I lost over winter but still it, they have been building wax and bringing in nectar and pollen like nothing I've ever seen which is really incredible and reading some of my local forums and groups where other people also got saskatraz packages they've seen similar so i'm really excited about this this was a really fun experiment i'm glad that i made some nukes with those genetics and i would definitely consider getting another package with a saskatraz hybrid queen other news um which is going on here is I had connected with someone through a beekeeping group who lived right down the road from me and was asking if there was anyone local who would be willing to have her come out and just kind of watch when they do an inspection or help or whatever and we were finally able to schedule that on a weekend it was very hot we all wore face masks under our suits and our veils, so it that made it even hotter but I really appreciated their consideration um And it was really great. Um, I really enjoyed talking to them. It's her and her husband. They're very, very nice. They work the hives together. She's had kind of a rough first year. Uh, Her nuke ended up killing their queen and trying to replace her and didn't succeed in replacing her. And she ended up with a laying worker that she's been trying to fix. And that's very difficult to fix, especially for a first year. But she's been working with the person she got her nuke from, which is one of my teachers, uh, Laura Urban, I definitely recommend her for any kind of bee products, and her honey is really good as well. So she is finally, as of last week, queen Wright and she was just really fun to talk to. And I've never sort of done any kind of hands-on, like education or anything, so that was fun. It was new for me and for her, and I'm hoping that uh, things continue to go better for her. I think she's doing a really fantastic job for a first year in particular considering all the problems that this one hive just kind of threw up at her Um, and speaking of uh, queen rearing my nucleus colonies are all queen right I am three four three Um, after a little bit of ups and downs I now have three queens laying eggs in those nukes Now, one of them, the queen, is really small. Um, I'll post a picture on my Instagram and the website. I have not seen a queen this small before, and that concerns me because there have been studies that smaller queens tend to generally not do as well. They don't mate as well. So I'm going to be watching her in particular with great interest. But the other queens are really fat. Um, The two fat queens are from my uh one is from my ohio queen and the other one is from my um well it's hard to say actually they're either from my southern queen or they're from my saskatras queen so i need to double check my notes but i suspect they're the southern queen so that's really good i'm very excited <laughs> um, and speaking of queen rearing and like queen cups and all that kind of stuff Just a little note on queen cups. So I know I've talked about them before. And remember, a queen cup is not a queen cell. So it's that little, uh, I almost think of it as like a little scoop shell that bees will make, um, kind of almost like as practice. But it doesn't become a queen cell until an egg is laid in there and they start feeding it royal jelly and pulling that cell out into that kind of peanut looking shape. So queen cups are normal to see and I know I've talked about things before like if you see a lot of queen cups on the basis of frames and you also see an increase in drones that could be an early sign that the colony is at least considering swarming and it's a good time to look at whether you need to do a split or add another box or whatever. And so some beekeepers have this attitude of well bees are going to make queen cups you don't need to knock them down. And I tend to agree up to a point. I don't knock down a queen cup until I have seen eggs and or the queen because what if I found a queen cup and that was an early supersedure cell, I get rid of it, inadvertently kill that egg that's in there and there's no queen to lay further eggs. So I always suggest looking for an egg or looking for the queen before you knock them down. But here is a really good lesson in why you should knock them down sometimes. And that's because my Saskatchewan. bees Which some of you might recall have been making queen cups since day one. They have produced more of them than I'm used to seeing. And these aren't queen cups on the bottom of the frames, which I'm seeing in my other hives. These are queen cups right in the middle, which is kind of where you would expect to see a supersedure cell. And so after I would verify their eggs and everything in there, I've been knocking them down. But there's one that after a while I just left because they kept putting it in the same spot. And here is why you should knock them down because I go into that hive the other day and this is in the bottom box and there is a queen cell being pulled out. And it was probably just a couple of couple of days away, I would say, from being full size, which would mean that it would eventually be capped. And my first thought was, oh God, where is my queen? Because it looked like a supersedure cell. So I separate all the boxes out and I start carefully going through them and, and I found X. So that was good. So I'm like, OK, well, there was a queen in there at least three days ago. And I keep looking through and I find my queen. So as I'm looking through this colony as well, what I'm seeing is a lot of backfilling and very little room for the queen to lay X And then I realised upon finding my queen that what had happened is I had left that queen cup on the frame. And having nowhere else to lay, she had laid an egg in the queen cup. And because an egg's in there, the girls start feeding the egg and pulling it out into what would have been a supersedure cell. So after confirming that I had eggs and confirming that I had a queen... I knocked that sucker down. Now, when I looked in it, I didn't think I could see anything. But when I smushed it, there were signs that there actually had been a lava in there. So I'm going to keep an eye on them because I'm hoping that my theory about she just filled the space is correct. But they might know something I don't. And if I see more supersedure cells popping up, I will probably let them go ahead and get rid of that queen or I will take her out put her in a nucleus colony and let them pull another queen because if they want a supersedure they know something I don't I am assuming because bees are going to be right so that said excuse me my throat's getting really dry already okay so now we're going to move on to more of the lives of bees by thomas seeley and i wasn't even sure if i was going to be able to record this week because what with everything that was going on last week with like traveling to columbus and taking care of my girl and then like the stress of all of that um it was hard to sit down and read because as I've said before, this book is pretty technical. And as much as I love bees, sometimes it's a little dry. There's quite a lot of maths in it. I don't like (laughs) maths. So I'm definitely one of those people who, um, I have taken quite complicated math courses in college, but I learn what I need to, to pass the exam. And then it's like, my brain goes, okay, we're never going to use that again. And it's all gone. So I've, really am trying as I move through this book to condense the material and make it as accessible as possible because that's part of why I'm reviewing this book. My concern is that it's written by a biologist, it's written in a scientific manner to a quite a large degree and I don't want all the facts and the figures and some of the dryness to put people off from reading it because there's so much good information in there. So now it's time to dig in again and I'm going to start with chapter five which is about the nest and it opens with this quote from Charles Darwin from his book on the origin of species 1859. He must be a dull man who can examine the exquisite structure of a comb so beautifully adapted to its end without enthusiastic admiration which is relatively poetic for Charles Darwin I feel like. So the nest. We know that the nest of a wild colony contributes fundamentally to a colony's survival and this chapter looks into the form and the function of wild nest sites to determine how they differ from managed hives as well as to isolate those aspects of the nest and the nesting area that affect the survival of individual colonies. So to quote Thomas Seeley himself, By looking at the nest of a wild colony as a survival tool that extends beyond the bees own bodies, we will become aware that beekeepers risk disrupting the adaptive biology of their bees by housing them in movable frame hives that are crowded together in apiaries. So this section of the chapter is called Natural Nests in Trees. And Seeley references his own study from the mid-1970s that he conducted with one of his first scientific mentors, Professor Roger A. Morse, who was then the Professor of Apiculture or Apiculture at Cornell University. At this time, Seely was a young student and he was just beginning to look into what wild honeybees are looking for when they swarm and find nesting sites. Seely's goal was to describe in detail the natural nest sites and by doing so determine what typical properties of these sites such as cavity volume, entrance size, entrance height etc were a preference of the bees or whether these aspects are merely what's commonly available to the bees. So for this initial study Seely identified 36 bee trees which were found either by bee lining which I described in in a previous chapter and a previous episode where you trace forager bees back to their hive or by an advert they put out in local papers which basically said that they would pay a certain amount of money for anyone who could direct them to a tree that had a honeybee hive in it and the way they were going to assess these nesting sites was by cutting down the tree transporting the section of the tree that had the nest in it to the canal laboratory area and then dissecting the hive. So opening up the hive space and going through it bit by bit to determine all the aspects of that nest. And so from the 36 bee trees that they identified, they ended up with 21 bee trees that they could actually effectively cut down, load on the truck and take to the lab. And of these, um, basically the ones that they couldn't take were positioned in a way that they either couldn't access with a truck or that were just way too cumbersome to safely move. Now, one of the first things that Thomas Seeley looked at were the entrances of the nests and he found the following information about this. 79% 79% consisted of single openings so a single nest opening whereas the rem- the remaining percent had between two to even five. 56% of entrances were usually not holes in the tree, 32% were like fissures or cracks in the trunk and 12% were actually in the gaps of roots. 58% were located in the bottom third of the nest cavity, 18% in the middle and 24% in the upper third. The average size of the nest entrances were just 29 centimetres square or 4.5 inches square and to give you an idea the Langstroth standard entrance opening is much larger at 75 centimetres square or 12 inches square. A later study that Seedy conducted demonstrated a tendency for bees to nest high in a tree with 90% of the 21 nest entrances examined being higher than four meters or 13 feet. Sorry, that came out really cumbersome. And my doorbell just went, hang on, <laughs> so sorry. Okay, I may or may not edit this out. I'm gonna try reading that again. So a later study by Thomas Seeley demonstrated that bees tend to nest high in a tree with 90% of the nest entrances that he examined being higher than four meters or 13 feet. Now going back to his dissection of the bee trees from the mid-1970s study he was able to determine that the tree cavities occupied by honeybees were tall and cylindrical on average 156 centimetres or 62 inches tall and 23 centimetres or nine inches in diameter the average volume of the nests were 47 litres which is 12.4 gallons and that's only slightly larger than the 42 litres or 11.1 gallons of a standard deep langstroth box The inner walls of these nesting cavities were coated with propolis several millimetres thick as as were the floors and the ceilings in older occupied hives. So it looks like the walls are the primary focus of where they put the propolis. But the longer they're in that nest, the more they'll work on coating the floor and the ceiling as well. This uh, this propolis often coated around and then just outside the entrance And the length of the passageway through the tree's trunk that bees walked in order to enter and exit the nest averaged 15 centimetres or 16 inches with one particular outlier outlier being 74 centimetres or 29 inches. And this is an important measurement because it gives you an idea of the thickness of the, the, um, the tree bark around them, which in turn gives us an idea of what kind of insulation that these nests have. When examining the comb of these 21 nests Seeley discovered that on average total comb area was 1.17 square meters or 12.6 square feet which is approximately 13 deep Langstroth frames. Most of the comb consisted of smaller worker cells On average the drone cells consisted of about 17% of all cells and he did note that he failed to take measurements of the worker cells during the study so he can't comment on what their exact dimensions were. The bees organise their comb by storing honey in in the upper regions, brood below and with a broad band of pollen stored between the brood and the honey, which is what we're familiar with when we go into our colonies now. On average, these wild colonies had 15.1 kilograms or 33.2 pounds of honey stored by the time of the examination, which was late July to early August. There was no signs of disease found in the comb or the brood. Although, remember, this is the 1970s. So this was before the introduction of Varroa and tracheal mite. So Seely was looking at things like fowl brood, um, hive beetles, and like other kind of bacterial or viral issues. The next section is about nest site selection. And Thomas Seeley posits that honeybees do in fact carefully choose their nesting sites, the process of which begins in late spring and early summer, so about May to July. This scouting for a new home starts before the process of swarming has even begun, when foraging bees stop looking for nectar and pollen and instead begin investigating potential nesting sites we call these bees scout bees and they can spend as long as an hour closely inspecting a potential site both inside and outside. The consistencies of properties between nesting sites led the author to surmise that scout bees assess these properties specifically in regards to the suitability of the cavity. However in order to demonstrate this as a preference instead of just a consistency in what's available. Thomas Seeley turned to scientific and beekeeping literature for further information on nest site preferences of wild honeybees only to find almost nothing and as initially frustrating as this was it quickly led to excitement for him as he realized that he'd located a region of uncharted territory in the biology of Apis mellifera. And I had a little giggle when I read this because there's nothing, well, in my experience of being married to a scientist and having a lot of friends who are scientists, there's nothing they love more than a completely uncharted area of research. So in order to begin to determine nest site preference, Thomas Seeley set out bait hives in groups with varied elements and then noted which hives attracted swarms. The boxes within each group were spaced Far apart, uh, 10 meters or 33 feet on similarly sized trees with equal visibility, exposure and location. So those are all the things that he made sure were a commonality between every single group. Each group would demonstrate one preference of the bees one box that matched all properties typical of a nest site while one would be atypical. So to give you an idea to test a preference for small nesting site openings Thomas Seeley set up two identical boxes except one had a typical entrance size of 12.5 centimetres square which is two inches square while the other had a large entrance of 75 centimetres square or 12 inches square which is what we find in our Langstroth hives. And then he would see which box attracted a swarm. In total, the author built 252 next nest boxes and positioned them in small groups throughout the Ithaca countryside in the summers of 1976 and 1977. He attracted 124 swarms and determined four key aspects of entrance preference size direction height and location and two features of the cavity itself volume and where the comb is already present so I'm going to break that down a little bit further in terms of entrance size preference of 14 test sites with entrance differences the smaller entrance was consistently chosen by wild swarms for entrance direction Test sites with entrances facing southeast, south or southwest had much higher occupation than those facing northerly. A study conducted in Canada actually found that southerly facing hives were less likely to have entrances plugged by snow and frost during the winters, allowing adequate hive ventilation during this incredibly challenging period. So this kind of supports why southerly facing hives appeared to be the preference for wild colonies. For entrance height, eight test sites were established and six swarms were caught in total. And all of those swarms chose the nests with the higher entrances. And this is actually consistent with what Thomas Seeley has seen in terms of the height of wild bee nests. For entrance location, 12 pairs of nest boxes were provided all with the same cavity size, Though one box of the pair had an upper entrance and the other was at floor level. Ten of the twelve pairs attracted swarms, with eight of those swarms selecting the box with the bottom entrance. In terms of cavity volume... Okay, this is going to get a little technical, so bear with me. We're going to get technical, technical. But it's going to be a lot of figures (laughs) just... So we'll take a deep breath, we'll get through this together. So cavity volume. Sealy set up 14 test sites with four boxes of varying sizes. 10, 40, 70 and 100 litres, which is equivalent to 2.6, 10.6, 18.5 and 26.4 gallons. Of these, no swarms chose the smallest size box, but 11 swarms moved into the larger boxes so this indicates that the 10 litre or 2.6 gallon box is just too small to be appealing to the honeybee. Next Sealy set up 10 more testing areas with just two different sized boxes 40 litres which is 10.6 gallons and 100 litres or 26.4 gallons. Seven swarms moved into the smaller of the two boxes and none were attracted to the largest boxes. He didn't test the upper range much further than this. But his basic conclusion from these tests was that 10 gallons is too small and 100 gallons is too large. So it makes the preference of bees between those two sizes. He later did further tests and given an option of a cavity between 10 and 25 litres or 2.5 and 6.6 gallons, or between an upper limit of 17.5 and 25 litres, or 4.6 and 6.6 gallons, Seeley found that swarms readily occupied the 25 litre boxes, but never the 10 litre boxes, and rarely the 17.5 litre. So these results fit with previous studies that found that wild honeybees in the area of the US where Celia is conducting his experiments, which as a reminder is Ithaca, New York, requires approximately 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of honey to successfully overwinter. And this amount won't fit in either a 10 litre or a 17.5 litre box. And so that would support why honeybees didn't choose those sizes when given an option. Further studies by other scientists in different locations indicate that the lower limit of a cavity nest size does appear to be dependent on how much honey is needed for winter survival, with bee races native to colder regions having larger nests in order to store more honey. And you can read more detailed information about those studies on pages 117 and 119, I'm not going to go through them. I feel like a lot of that information is kind of unnecessary because I just summed it up um, through what was just discussed. But it is definitely worth a read if you want to see what other scientists um, found that do support Thomas Seeley's own findings here. Now, in terms of combs in cavity preference, Seely set out 12 pairs of 40 litre or 10.6 gallon nest boxes and one of each pair contained old dark wax comb and the other box was empty of all comb. Four of these pairs attracted swarms with three moving into the box with comb and one into the box without. But what was interesting is that in the pair of boxes where the honeybees chose the box that had no comb, the author actually found that the box with comb had already been taken up by yellow jackets, making it unavailable to the honeybees. So it seems likely that if the yellow jackets hadn't got there first, the honeybees would have. But basically, three out of four of these swarms when actually given the option, consistently went for the boxes that had old honeycomb. And this fits with what we as beekeepers have always been told about how to attract swarms, that if you have old comb and you put that into your swarm uh, law or swarm trap, that you are more likely to attract honeybees. The next section discusses some nest site properties that are not important to bees, and I've just summed them up. So Sealy experimented with a couple of different aspects of nesting sites, and the results are that bees didn't seem to have a preference either way. So for instance, he looked at whether bees liked a tall, thin entrance versus one of the same area, but circular instead of tall. He put boxes out with dried sawdust on the floor versus kind of soggy sawdust. He had a box with solid walls versus one with walls containing 25 holes, each one being consistent in diameter. And then he also looked at using tall boxes versus cubicle boxes that had the same volume. And the results of these tests showed absolutely no preferences. In fact, in the boxes with sawdust, whether it was dry or damp, the bees simply got rid of it. Uh, For the boxes with holes, the bees plugged them neatly with propolis. So apparently these kind of um, conditions or properties don't have any real effect on the suitability of nesting cavities according to the bees themselves. Now we look at comb building. This section of the chapter goes into a great detail about the importance of comb building to a newly swarmed or newly homed colony, as well as how the beeswax comb is actually formed he even outlines exactly how much nectar is needed to build just a small fraction of comb and i'm going to summarize the key points here because this was the section where I got a little cross-eyed because Celia actually does calculations to demonstrate exactly how much nectar slash sugar water is needed to build exactly how much comb and therefore how many bees it takes and how long it will take them to do it and where this fits within the life cycle of a swarm and so on and so forth and it's a lot of math and it's just me reading numbers at you and if you're anything like me your eyes are going to cross so hopefully you already have a copy of this book and if you want to read through it I do recommend that you look at it it's very interesting but otherwise I'm just going to sum things up. So key points when considering comb building of a colony include the following. The primary producers of wax within a colony are of middle age but in a swarm older bees that would usually be foraging at that age will regenerate their wax wax glands in order to make wax for the new nest. The thickness of the layer of cells lining the inner surface of the wax gland in a honeybee correlates directly to the rate of wax production. In a swarm, both middle-aged and elderly bees have the same rate of production and therefore thickness of the cell lining. And I thought this was really interesting because basically it demonstrates that an elderly bee whose wax gland had previously... um, atrophied or become unworkable not only regenerates during swarming but actually regenerates to a level that you see in the younger bees that have just started their wax production the energetic cost of wax production is considerable and i know this is something that i've talked about a lot A typical wild nest will contain approximately 1.2 square metres or 12.9 square feet of comb and this requires about 1.2 kilograms or 2.6 pounds of beeswax which requires 60,000 worker bees, roughly five times more than the number of bees in a single swarm. Producing this amount of beeswax requires approximately... 7.5 kilograms or 16.5 pounds of honey, which is a third of the honey needed by a colony to overwinter successfully. So, what we're seeing is in order to establish a full wild nest, the colony needs a big population. So, it needs to get in there, build enough wax to increase its population of bees, and also that they need to use up a third of the honey that could otherwise be going towards their overwintering. When building new comb, honeybees are perhaps unsurprisingly then extremely frugal with their wax use, as evidenced directly by the shape of the cells themselves. And to quote a very sciencey description of the cells, they are a right hexagonal prism capped on the inner end by a trihedral pyramid. Put more simply, they are identical cylinders that have been compressed into hexagonal prisms. So basically, imagine that you took multiple cylinders, so multiple pieces of piping, and you stacked them up in a box and then looked at them. There would obviously be gaps in between and that's completely wasted space as far as the bees are concerned if you were to push these pipes together if they were made of a softer material when you compress them tightly together they form hexagons and all of that wasted space between the cylinders is now eliminated and this is what we're seeing when we look at honeycomb And what's really interesting is that building comb in this shape requires approximately 52% of the wax needed to build cylindrical cells. And that's a tremendous energy saving. That's just over half, again, the energy savings. And on top of this sort of formation to be frugal, worker bees will shave down the cell walls to a mere 0.073 millimetres or 0.003 inches in thickness and they use their antenna to assess the wall thickness and get to this consistent level. Bees will also recycle old wax whenever they can. So for instance when a new bee emerges from its cell the wax cap is not discarded but stuck to the edge of that cell for future use so they can use it to cap that cell again comb building is timed by the colony for maximum benefit versus cost for a swarm comb building is absolutely essential in order to create the cells needed for brood rearing and therefore contribute to and replace the workforce of the hive Seely talks a little bit about a study by one of his PhD students Stephen C. Pratt who demonstrated that a colony will optimise its comb building by limiting construction of new comb to periods when two specific requirements are met. The first one is that comb is filled beyond a threshold level and the second is that there is an adequate nectar flow and an adequate number of forages to collect the nectar. So basically, what this means is that colonies will start building new comb when there is fuel, nectar available, and before they have completely filled their existing comb. And this begs the question, how do bees assess comb fullness and nectar intake? Now, Seely states that further studies do need to be done here, but his personal hypothesis based on what he has Seen himself and the studies that currently exist is that it's related to how long it takes a nectar receiver to find an empty cell to fill. So remember that a forager comes in and then they give their nectar to a bee that receives it and goes to fill the cell. And he is basically saying that if a nectar receiver gets the nectar from a forager, goes into the hive and then actually has to do quite a lot of walking to find an empty cell available, that this whole process and this period of time indicates comb fullness to the bees that then can then be transmitted to the rest of the hive. The bees could then respond to this difficulty by actually becoming wax producers in order to create more space. Nectar receivers and wax producers both tend to be middle-aged bees which gives some support to this hypothesis. So again perhaps what happens is a nectar receiver walks walks and walks and walks doesn't find that empty cell for a while and that this triggers a change in them to now become wax producers so they can create more space. The next section is control of comb type and basically means what comb do they build and why is it worker cell is it drones uh, cell and so on so a swarm will focus almost entirely on building worker cells initially as these are the bees that do everything they produce more wax they raise the brood they feed the queen and then they eventually go and forage as a colony becomes established the larger drone comb can be made as drones are an important part of a colony's reproduction Honey is stored in both worker and drone cells for the coming winter. Seely asked the question of how the bees decide when exactly to invest in the larger drone cells. And how do they regulate the building process to decide what size of cell to create? So he refers again to an experiment by his PhD student Stephen C. Pratt that revealed three key discoveries. One bees require physical contact with existing drone comb to inhibit production of more drone cells. Two, contact with the queen plays no part in this process. And three, the inhibition of creating more drone comb comes from the drone comb itself, though this inhibition is stronger when that comb contains brood. What does this mean? (laughs) Primarily that further more detailed study and analysis of comb building is actually needed here but also that worker bees appear to know what comb to build by interacting directly with completed cells of worker and drone brood and by interacting with comb that is in the process of being built so this is kind of like saying it appears as if honeybees somehow are keeping a running tally of what comb already exists in the colony and what comb is in the process of being made. But again, we need a lot more further study on this to actually say scientifically and with great accuracy how they assess and decide what comb to build. Next, we move on to the propolis envelope, which is Thomas Seeley's term for it. So propolis or propolis or however you say the word (laughs) is a key part of nest building in wild colonies. As I stated previously they will line the inner walls, floor, ceiling and entrance with a thin layer. It's actually been measured almost consistently at less than one millimeter or 0.04 inches. In our managed hives even those that we use every single year this application of this tree resin is not seen. So I'm sure we've gone in, we've cracked open our boxes and we can have particularly sticky hives, but I've never seen a hive where all the walls and the ceiling and the entrance are completely coated. So propolis is made of tree resin and it's collected from newly formed leaf buds where the resin is a protective coating, as well as from injury sites on trees where it starts to leak out. There are many trees across North America and Europe that are suitable for this particular kind of resin production and just to name a few it would be something like cottonwoods, chestnuts, birches, aspen, pine and spruce. How does a bee collect resin? Well a bee will find a tree that either has these newly formed leaf buds that are covered with resin or has a wound on it and she'll chew off a little piece of this uh, resin using her mandibles. She then grasps it with her forelegs. Passes it to a mid leg, and from the mid leg, she then places it into her cubicula, which is her little pollen baskets on the back legs. She has a pollen basket on each side of her body, and she'll fill both of them with the resin, just as she would do if she was collecting pollen. When she returns to the nest, Resin user bees will bite off pieces of the collected resin while she just kind of stands there patiently until they empty her cubiculars. And once they are empty, she goes off to find more. And what was very interesting to me about this chapter or section of the chapter is that there's very little known about resin collector bees or resin user bees, and there's a complete dearth of research on the subject. Now, I actually never think about this. I assumed that resin use and resin collecting was just one of those things that maybe every bee did in their lifetime, but it looks like that might not actually be the case. So there is one study that was conducted by Professor Jun Nakamura from the Honey Bee Science Center at Tamagawa University in Japan, and he attempted to answer some of the many questions about resin collectors in the honeybee colony. Using an observation hive he added groups of newly hatched which he referred to as zero day old bees and labeled these were also labeled and then he did this every three to four days during May and then he tracked their jobs within the hive as they aged which is why they were labeled so he could clearly identify these bees. Of these 800 introduced bees only 10 of them were resin users and all of those resin users were of middle age when they began that task. So that would be right after they finished their work as nurse nurse bees but before they go out and become foragers. Of those resin collectors in the hive all were elderly bees 25 to 38 days old just as we'd see with foragers who forage for nectar, water and pollen. Professor Nakamura also found that some resin collectors could also be resin users, going directly to an area that needed working and engaging in corking behaviour. Now, these bees tended to bring resin back to the hive via their cubicular and their mouths, and then would just go straight from bringing this in to getting to work. Of the 102 resin collectors identified, 67% of them continued to collect resin for the rest of their lives, while the remaining 33% eventually switched back to collecting pollen or nectar. And this raises the big question, what stimulates resin collectors to continue this task? And little is known. Um, There are some studies that are mentioned. One is by researchers at the University of Minnesota who discovered that resin collectors have greater abilities to learn via tactile stimulus or touch than pollen foragers, which could indicate that they're more capable and receptive to the presence of even very, very tiny gaps, crevices, and rough surfaces within the nest. Considering how much work must be done to collect and use resin within the nesting cavity, it must be of very great value to the bees or else this would just be nothing more than a huge energy drain. And as we are seeing, bees are very frugal and are very careful about how they exert themselves some studies have shown that propolis functions as an antimicrobial surface that assists in disease prevention and perhaps this is why bees will invest so much work into collecting and using this resin and this is going to be discussed in a lot greater detail in chapter 10 of this book when we finally get there (laughs) and next up we are on to the annual cycle of a wild colony and this is chapter six the annual cycle. And again, there is an opening quote and the opening quote is the following. Oh, give us pleasure in the orchard white like nothing else by day, like ghosts by night and make us happy in the happy bees that swarm dilating round the perfect trees. That's by Robert Frost, A Prayer in Spring from 1915. Now, Thomas Seely. Opens this chapter by comparing honeybees to all other social bees, which includes bumblebees, in how they manage winter survival. The honeybee colony will not enter hibernation as other bees do, but instead clusters together with the queen at the centre and generates heat to survive the cold temperatures outside of the nest. A winter cluster will maintain a temperature of around 10 Celsius or 50 Fahrenheit, even if outside temperatures are as low as minus 30 degrees Celsius or minus 22 Fahrenheit. So we can see then how critical the nesting site is in assisting with this endeavor, as a protective cavity with no icy drafts will provide critical insulation. In a similar vein, a suitable store of honey is going to be needed to fuel all this hard work of maintaining a steady temperature. As stated previously, on average, a colony requires 20 kilograms or 45 pounds of honey to survive. Honeybee colonies are unique in that they appear to respond to the lengthening days after the winter solstice by increasing the heat within their cluster in order to begin brood production. At this time when they're actively rearing brood, they will maintain a temperature of around 35 Celsius or 95 degrees Fahrenheit. This early brood production means that the colony is going to be sufficiently populated with worker bees when the plants begin to bloom and produce nectar in spring. By the time bumblebee queens, as an example, begin to emerge in late spring, a successfully overwintered honeybee colony will contain approximately 10,000 workers and are starting their full reproductive process, which includes drone production and swarming. So basically the honeybee colony is much further ahead by the time the little sleepy bumblebee queens even begin to wake up. And this following chapter addresses the unique annual cycle of Apis mellifera as well as the adaptations that have allowed this temperate climate insect to survive much colder climates than where they originally evolved. The first section is entitled Annual Cycle of Energy Intake and Expenditure. Surviving the cold temperatures of winter is energetically expensive and I've talked about this many times and I'm sure... You are all aware as you have prepared your hives to go into winter. And this means that a honeybee colony must ensure that it has enough honey, which is the primary food source, stored long before winter actually hits. We've also just discussed how constructing a new nest site and or new comb is also very energy intensive. So we can see how a colony's energy expenditure must rise and fall during the course of a year. One way to assess the energy expenditure of a colony is through monitoring its weight. Numerous studies within the US and Europe have done this, but those colonies were managed exclusively for honey production, and Thomas Seeley wanted to assess the potential weight changes of a wild colony, and so although he found these studies very helpful in some ways, they didn't apply to this particular area of his research, which meant he had to do it himself. So he set up a study using two unmanaged colonies. Each colony was hived in a double deke lamstroth with a total volume of 84 litres or 22.2 gallons, which were mounted on scales. He collected their weight every Sunday from November 1980 until June 1983, so just shy of the full three years except for twice monthly brood checks in late spring, summer and early autumn, neither colony was managed or manipulated in any fashion. Seely does point out that the location of these hives was the least natural part of the study, as he housed them close to where he lived, which was at the time in a botanical garden surrounded by a residential area. And this is an important thing to note because it means that these colonies very likely had more forage available to them to them than what we would see for wild colonies in heavily forested areas and this means that the results of this study are likely an underrepresentation of weight fluctuations of wild colonies. Unsurprisingly the results of the study showed that winter is a time of the most dramatic weight loss for each colony with each losing an average of 23.6 calories Kilograms, which is 52 pounds each year between September and April. I will be honest, I would not mind losing 52 pounds between September and April, Uh, but for a honeybee, that's a lot more serious. Um, Now, what I thought was very interesting is that Seeley actually figured out the weight of the dead worker bees. So he was able to figure out that of this 52 pounds, 2.2 pounds of which consisted of the bodies of dead workers that hadn't been removed from the hive and this means that the rest is entirely food storage that that big drop in weight was all of the honey and pollen stores that were being used up by the bees notably both colonies lost weight the fastest in March which is when brood rearing is most intense During this period the colonies lost an average of 0.84 kilograms or 1.85 pounds per week compared to an average loss of 0.42 kilograms or 0.93 pounds per week in December when the colonies had no brood. This study also demonstrated that both colonies gained weight for just 14 weeks of the year. That's one four weeks of the year with 86 percent of this annual weight gain occurring between April 16th and June 30th. That's just 75 days. Now, as I am reading this and talking to you it is July 7th so considering that my area of the world is not so far away from where Seeley conducted his study this now makes me wonder have my colonies reached their peak weight already and what does this mean for them moving forward? Overall this study highlights what most beekeepers already know that winter is an ever-looming potential crisis for our colonies. It also points to just why so many newly established colonies from swarms will fail in their first year with the high energy expenditure necessary for them to find a new nest, fill it with comb, produce brood, rear the brood, and then store honey and pollen. We can see how they are likely far lower in resources when winter hits than an established colony that did not have to invest in so much wax production. Now, For honeybee colonies living in milder climates, this might not present quite as large of a challenge to their overall survival. As it stands for colonies in the northern area of Europe and North America, Seely concludes that, to quote him directly, the primary obstacle to their survival is balancing the winter losses and the summer gains in their annual energy budgets. And this really supports what we see in our managed colonies as I've talked about before if you take too much honey from your hives before winter and you don't feed them you set them at a disadvantage and you decrease their chance of survival. Similarly in the spring we often feed our colonies and try and build them up as soon as possible because we understand that we want them to be primed with a high population for when the nectar flow begins and at least in this area this is very much in line with what wild colonies face as well. This next section is entitled annual cycle of colony growth and reproduction. So if we know that 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of Honey is needed on average for a colony to survive the winter. Then we can deduce that colony growth in the spring and early summer is critical to colony survival, as workers will be needed to forage and then later to cluster. A colony must time this growth carefully in order to maximise their resources and therefore the chance of surviving winter. Colony growth patterns have been previously described in two ways. One, Counting the number of filled brood cells in a colony throughout the year, and two, by counting the number of of adult bees in the colony at regular intervals throughout the year. To assess the annual cycle of reproduction, one has to consider both the male aspects of a colony, which is the drones, and the female, which is the queens. To do this you could count the number of drone cells produced throughout the year as well as the number of queen cells but the latter is a little bit more tricky because a colony might produce queen cells only to then tear them down. Seely posits therefore that a more accurate measure of a colony's reproductive success is by counting the number of swarms it produces in a year. Through through monitoring two hives that he used for this study, Seely recounts the rise and fall of colony population throughout the year. Data was collected via bi-monthly brood counts over a period of three years, from 1980 to 1983. Predictably, both colonies were broodless for several months in late autumn and early winter. In January and February, brood rearing began, presumably in response to the increase in daylight hours. Initial census at this time counted a mere 1,000 brood cells, though this number increases sharply to as much as 30,000 or more per colony in May and June. Usually swarming will occur at this time, which leaves the colony without brood for a few weeks while the new queen emerges, hardens, goes on her mating flights and then returns once the new queen has mated brood rearing returns to full strength for a few weeks before declining in autumn and eventually ceasing entirely in october now there are geographical differences in brood rearing just as i can't plan my hive management around a southern u.s state schedule neither could a southern state plan their management around my more northerly one This indicates that although brood rearing is partly controlled by genetics, the local environment of colonies fundamentally affects when brood rearing begins each year, which demonstrates a natural adaptation to best survive in local climate. Now drone production, which is our male section of reproduction, as I like to call it, drones are the sperm of the colony. This production tends to peak in May and June and then declines rapidly by July and August. This peak in drone production usually occurs a few weeks before peak swarming, which makes perfect sense if you consider that more drones means more opportunities for a virgin queen to mate well. Seely notes that of the 301 swarms collected in or around Ithaca over a 10-year period from 1971 to 1981, 84% of these swarms occurred between May 15th and July 15th. Swarming this early in the year allows the new or the founding colonies more time to build their nests and begin storing for winter. However, even with this early period of swarming only a small amount of these new colonies will survive the winter about 23 to 24 percent in total which is a sharp contrast to the established colonies that have a survival rate of 78 to 82 percent generally speaking a colony that has survived one winter will have a much higher chance of surviving the next in the late 1970s, Seely worked with Kirk Vischer to examine the survival rates of colonies that swarmed early and the survival rates of swarms that went late in the season. So to do this, they started with packages of bees, which is kind of the closest thing we can have to a swarm. And they started One group on May 20th and another group on June 30th. And these dates were chosen because they were 20 days before and after the median date of swarming for their area. Now, each package was given a single 10 frame Langstroth box that held only beeswax foundation. So the bees had to build their own comb as they would if they had swarmed in a natural environment. Over three of the four years of this experiment, forage was either extremely sparse or extremely abundant. In the abundant period, all colonies survived the winter. During the year of meager forage, all the colonies died. But for the year of moderate forage, nearly all the early swarms survived while all the late swarms died. So we can see how the critical this earlier period of swarming could be for a colony depending on that year's available forage. This study also demonstrates how natural selection favours those bees that begin brood rearing in winter, thus allowing them to reach peak population in early spring in order to swarm, aka reproduce. Now we move on to a section entitled The Unique Annual Cycle of Honeybee Colonies. So at the beginning of this chapter, Seely pointed out how the annual cycle of the honeybee versus bumblebee species are so markedly different. A colony of bumblebees starts with a single queen emerging in spring after having wintered underground. She then rears workers and then later males and queens in the summer before the whole colony disintegrates in autumn, leaving only the young, newly mated queens alive to survive the winter and then start their own colony in the spring. In contrast, honeybees create a warm microclimate within their nest using the heat of all the workers to maintain a steady temperature, which requires a large amount of food or energy. By storing honey, they give themselves the ability to produce this steady microclimate throughout the cold months of the year. The solution for bumblebees is actually far simpler. The queen adds antifreeze materials to her blood and then goes dormant in underground burrows. Now, interestingly, this method of overwintering is not just more simple, but it's also more effective. Seedy notes, for instance, how Bombus polaris, a species of bumblebee, can survive in tundra habitat above the Arctic Circle, which is well past the absolute furthest northern limit of the honeybee without beekeeper intervention. What might have led to this huge difference in overwintering behaviours of these two types of social bees? Thomas Seeley believes it's due to the ancestral environments of each species. Honeybees hail from warm, tropical environments, whereas bumblebees evolved from cooler, more temperate regions. Interestingly, the honeybee shares its tropical ancestral home with another highly social bee species, the stingless bee. This interesting bee shares two fundamental traits with honeybees, a multi-year colony lifespan and reproducing through swarming. Likely, the evolution of social bees is connected to their tropical origins where the need for a single queen to hibernate through an intense winter was not needed, thereby reducing the species to a single year cycle. Seely states that it's his belief that when honeybees expanded north and away from more tropical climates, the way in which they could adapt to cold winters was constrained by the complex social organization of its colonies. Apis mellifera did not adapt to a single year cycle with a hibernating queen, nor did it evolve so that the entire colony might go dormant, Instead, it used its existing biology to find the most expedient means of surviving the winter. It is Seeley's hypothesis that Apis mellifera achieved this via adjusting nest site preferences, refining the mechanisms of thermoregulation, increasing food storage within the nest, and carefully timing colony growth and reproduction throughout the year. To quote him directly here, In summary, I believe that the unique annual cycle of Apis mellifera as it lives in temperate regions of the world is best understood as being built on top of this bee's original biology as a tropical social insect. And that is it for this chapter. Now, I take what Seeley was saying here in his quote as meaning that the unique social structure of honeybees has played a large part in their survival and it seems as if it evolved in part because of where they lived in more tropical areas or at least their capacity for it to evolve allowed them to do so in part because of the environment. So when honeybees moved north as they spread throughout the globe When faced with cold winters, this highly social structure in some ways inhibited their ability to evolve more, I guess you could say, radical ways of survival. So as the bumblebee reduces basically its colony down to just the fertile mated queens who can then hibernate and arise in the spring to start another colony that will survive for just the year, the honeybees if you imagine them faced with the chance of maintaining their social structure, which would mean hibernating the whole colony or somehow completely undoing everything that led to that evolution of the social structure and reverting back to like a single year cycle like we see with the bumblebee. But instead, what Seeley's saying is that they took aspects of their current biology and he actually refers to it in the book as tweaking it. They tweaked their biology in ways that enabled them to survive without fundamentally altering their social structure. And that's in the list that I mentioned of things like nest site preferences, um, being more adept at thermoregulation and so on. Um, So I think, I mean, based on this book, based on what he's saying, I mean, that makes sense to me. Evolution rarely maintains very large jumps. It would make sense that the changes they made would be subtle that they would be smaller and that they would base it on existing foundations because natural selection is going to drive that um, ongoing evolution so that's it for this week I hope that this was clear I hope I did summarize things Um, you know sometimes I do ask my husband for a little help in condensing what to me is a great deal of information and I want to maintain some of the technical aspects of it but I also want it to be accessible and and I hope that that is what I'm doing. Uh, Please let me know if I need to modify how I'm doing this if you would like me to summarize some of the math a little bit more or if you want me to go more into detail on the math just let me know. As for my next episode I haven't quite decided what I'm going to do yet. If I do end up pulling honey frames and attempting my first honey harvest then that will probably be what I talk about because you know there's so much that I need to learn right now it's all theory and this would be my first attempt at hands-on practical honey extraction Um, or depending on how things go I might do one additional chapter and then a sort of larger update on what's going on with the hives Or maybe if a lot of things start happening here I will just do a big catch-up episode on everything that's going on particularly with the bees things that I'm seeing things that I'm learning and so on so watch this space I will definitely have something for you in two weeks I just haven't decided watch yet So as always please check out my episode description. I will put a website link to that bird website where you can source medication without prescriptions for your various avian friends whether they're chickens or parakeets and I'll also link to my website where I have photos that are going to go with this episode including some of the graphs from the book which I think help summarize the information and since I talked about her I think I'll maybe put a picture of my sweet Kaylee there because she is beautiful and um, you guys all deserve to see her sweet little face so please um, you can find me on all the social media I'm on Facebook I'm on Instagram Twitter Tumblr all that kind of stuff but I hang around on Instagram the most And you can find me there at Homestead Hens and Honey or you can check out my personal page at Pretty Kitty where I post a lot of pictures of my dogs (laughs) and the occasional shameless selfie. Feel free to reach out to me through any platform. You can contact me through my website. You can leave a message on my Podbean account or through Instagram, or you can email me directly at homesteadhensandhoney or one word at gmail.com. I love to hear from you guys, it makes me so happy. Um, I've been tagged a couple of times by listeners um, on social media saying like that they really enjoyed an episode or that. They found it helpful, or they're tagging me because they have a question about their hive. I love all of that. I really appreciate the people who reach out to me. I'm always available. So if you have questions, or corrections, or suggestions for things that I could do, or modify, or you just want to say hello, send me a message um, and I am always happy to hear from you. Things are still kind of weird in the world. So You know, as I've started saying at the end of every episode, please do your best to stay uh, stay healthy, stay safe, and if you can, stay self isolated. I know things are opening up again, which is good for those people who really needed to get back to work. But please keep in mind that you know your health is important. Um, Please wear a mask. Uh, recent studies have shown that wearing a mask reduces transmission of COVID-19 by 75 percent and that's great news for you and it's great news for your community so if there's one thing that I would ask all of my listeners to do please 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 wear a mask when you are out of the house and finally as always hug your hands and then wash your hands thank you so much for listening I will talk to you in two weeks take care of yourselves bye-bye